a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. All right, Steve, we're live. You ready? Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for this all week. It's only Monday. <laughs> Sweet. There, there you go. Hi, everybody. This is Gino Borges. I am here with Steve Glickman. We're having a fireside chat on perhaps one of the hottest conversations going on in um, not only the impact investing community, but the real estate investing community and in finance in general. And we're really fortunate to have uh, Steve join us today. A little background on how I met Steve. I was in Washington, D.C. About, uh, about two, three months ago at a Nexus conference. And Steve was on two panels on the Opportunity Zone uh, panels. And on both on both panels, it was clearly evident that uh, Steve was head and shoulders above um, the rest in terms of knowing what was happening in the Opportunity Zone space and really understood it from a way or from an angle that um, I really appreciated it because you really made people feel really comfortable uh, about the topic or around the topic. And more importantly is, is that you stay close to the hope and the intention of the program. As people spoke about potential problems of the program, you really had a strong sense of what the intentionality was. And I think that's a byproduct of also you having um, been on the journey in terms of creating it. And we'll, we'll be able to hear a little bit more about that as well. A little bit about um, Steve's background. He's the founder and CEO of Develop LLC, which is an advisory firm focused on building and supporting opportunity funds and broader opportunity zone uh, marketplace. Also is the co-founder and former CEO of the Economic Innovation Group, which was the bipartisan organization that was the chief architect of the $6 trillion OZ program, and also previously served in the Obama administration as a senior economic advisor at the National Security and Economic Councils, and has been featured in Bloomberg, LA Times, New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journals, and about 14 other, um, you know, 14 other publications as well. Point being is, is that uh, Steve really knows his stuff about opportunity zones and is really, really passionate about the topic too. So not only is a policy wonk, but is really passionate about it and um, is excited to be here. We've been um, sort of getting warmed up on the topic for the past 10, 15 minutes. So we actually have a little momentum going into this talk. So welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. It's exciting to, exciting to be here with you. As you mentioned, I, this is all I think about these days. So that either makes me very useful or very boring. So ho hopefully you'll find it more useful than boring. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, yes, we will. Um, again, my name is Gino Borges. And just briefly, I am a partner at Open Path Investments, which is a social impact real estate company, uh, which fits really well into this, this larger conversation about opportunity zones. And I'm also a representative of Andy's Capital um, as well. In terms of how the call will be structured, the call is structured uh, in a way 
to honor the fact that we have numerous people on the line with varying types of experience, Steve. And so we'll actually start off with a wide net and then we'll use more of a funnel. We'll funnel the conversation um, as, as we go through it. The intention is to go until about noontime. So we'll run about an hour, about 50 to 60 minute uh, chat. I have a list of questions, but we're also going to honor the organic emergence of what comes up. Um, Steve, I'm sure we'll go in particular directions and I do want to honor that uh, natural flow as well. Steve, just to begin with, um, at a high level, what was the Opportunity Zones designed to do? Uh, it, so it, it, it's fundamentally a program meant to change the way at least some part of the capital markets work. It's, I, I think, both the commentary on what capitalism and investment looks like these days and also uh, the capacity of government to address what are now longstanding issues that relate to inequality. Uh, uh, the Economic Innovation Group, which was the organization you mentioned that, that I uh, launched and, and ran from 2013 to 2018, uh, along with Sean Parker, who um, was our, our chairman and, and kind of chief uh, patron, was really a, a, an attempt to bring a bipartisan approach to one specific type of inequality, which is geographic inequality, which at the time we were looking at, it was not something that was very well understood or mattered to people uh, in a time when we were very focused on income inequality. And we thought, and I think still do think, that income inequality is a byproduct that only a big chunk, of, only a small, relatively small chunk of the country these days can benefit from economic growth, particularly um, after we had the huge recession in 2008. And it became, I think, clear that the federal government and state governments and large companies, for that matter, weren't uh, uh, able to, to be stewards of the sort of redevelopment that we needed in many places, uh, and that private capital had to step up, but, but just wasn't. And, uh, and that there was an enormous amount of wealth that had been generated in that part of the economy, in part because of how successful stock market was and also because of how we changed the tax code over the last 30 years to keep a much more wealth with with individuals and so this is a way to uh, catalyze long-term private equity investments in uh, what are should be relatively distressed low-income communities around the country and to try to do it with a federal subsidy which is what the opportunity zone tax incentives provide uh, but with skin in the game from state and local players, which is why um, governors were largely empowered with picking the opportunity zones in their states. And what you have now is a map of 8,760 places that make up about 12% of the country, cover 35 million Americans, um, that make up the downtowns of many cities, at least in the middle of the country. They're about 75% urban, 25% rural. And they're and they're a big experiment to see if we can we can sort of crowdfund a Marshall Plan for places that have fallen behind through uh, the private capital channels and use that to do everything to from build uh, real estate development to infrastructure and energy projects to uh, invest in businesses and, and do venture capital investments. And we're really in the first inning of it, although it's a good time to have this call because we just got um, a, a number of answers to open questions from Treasury and the IRS through a large amount of regulations. There are now 250 pages of regulations around this program that provide a blueprint for what you can invest and how you can invest. And 
The shorthand is, I think, between the, the legislation and this and what what you've seen happen from this administration, you have a fairly flexible program that should be useful for lots of different types of investors. Take me through that journey in terms of the innovation group. I mean, how I mean, how did this all sort of come about? I mean, this I see I mean, people were actually behind this program. So who had the idea and then sort of take us Take us through that five-year journey a little bit in terms of how we got to this point. Yeah, yeah. so uh, Sean Parker was an early instigator of this for sure. I mean, I think he he's someone who's very, very smart and sees a, a book, you know, kind of ahead of the curve on things that are happening in the country and was sort of moving from the private sector phase of his journey to the philanthropic phase. And uh, he was very interested in how you do development, I think not just in the U.S., but around the world, through a private sector lens in a way that's more sustainable. And we had some early conversations in 2012 that really led to the creation of this experimental group, a bipartisan group in D.C. that was supposed to be kind of a combination of a think tank and an advocacy group um, uh, uh, to bring together investors, uh, depressed communities and and mostly at that point, federal policymakers and mostly Congress. It started under the Obama administration, of course, became law under the the Trump administration. Um, And we spent two years in stealth mode trying to figure out what we wanted to do and uh, uh, taking a look at a a previous place-based incentive programs. You know, these type of incentives have a long bipartisan history uh, that dates back to Jack Kemp in the 70s and 80s and Bill Clinton. Uh, the last program in this space was, the, you know, almost 20 years ago. And a lot of those programs hadn't been very successful. And that commentary is very much alive today. Although, you know, past is not prologue, we designed a program that was meant to function um, very differently from previous programs in being much more flexible and scalable so that they could deploy capital into lots of different asset classes. But we took a long time to study it, two years which being in stealth mode for two years in DC, you might as well be dead. People do not invite you to parties. They do not want to talk to you at um, at events. Um, And we launched in 2015, along with a group of um, co-sponsors or champions that became co-sponsors of the legislation. So Cory Booker and Tim Scott were very involved in the political side. We also worked with uh, uh, Jared Bernstein, who was Vice President Biden's chief economist, and Kevin Hassett, who became Donald Trump's chief economist, which is very interesting because they're likely to be, they're right now favored to be the two opponents for the presidency in 2020. We'll see what happens. But it just goes to show that there are ideas that work across the aisle and that aren't even that controversial um, if you structure it the right way and frame it the right way and build the right group of champions. But we were still at that point a long shot for passing legislation. We developed a, a white paper that became a, you know, a, a a piece of legislation that was introduced in 2016 and eventually reintroduced in 2017. And then because of a sequence of events that I think involved Donald Trump's election and a recognition that place had a, was a matter to people politically and um, uh, were experiencing the economy differently. Um, and, uh, and in part because we had a very strong champion in Tim Scott, who's the Republican senator from South Carolina, who, um, was a, a lieutenant in passing the tax reform bill that happened at the end of 2017. We actually had a shot and we had like, you know, a, a life raft to jump on to get this this idea across the finish line. And all of a sudden it became law at the end of 2017. And we were off to the races uh, when no one really knew about this, but we needed 
governors to act and mayors to act and the administration to act and Congress to act and investors to act. And you're very much seeing the organic growth of a new market. Wow. And then, uh, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people are attracted to this from the angle you mentioned at it from a policy angle, but there's also a lot of investors that are for, uh, um, they're interested in this topic from a lot of angles. Can you talk about what are the benefits to opportunity zone investors compared to traditional investments? So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Opportunity Zone incentive is different than a lot of other programs. It's not an upfront tax credit. What it's designed to do is to subsidize the risk of doing uh, growth investing and real estate development projects in what are economically struggling markets. And the way it subsidizes that risk is in two ways. It provides you an incentive that relates to capital gains. Um, at the front end and the back end. And what I mean by the front end is to be an investor in this program, you have to start with capital gains and you have to take that, um, that, that kind of inactive capital gains, sell that asset and create a tax event for yourself, which you can then redeploy into what are called opportunity funds, which are basically specialty private equity vehicles that can be structured in lots of different ways, but that are investing for a long-term period of time in these zones. And to get the full incentive, you really need to be invested in these funds for 10 years or more. So these are this is patient capital. Uh, as you go along and you stay invested, you get to defer that original tax bill, that original capital gains until uh, 2027. That's when you have to pay that tax. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, you get a discount on that capital gains tax, up to 15%. So that's the front end benefit. Uh, the back end benefit is much bigger. And that's that whatever you invest in, if you've held your stake in that fund for 10 years or more, uh, when you sell those investments, uh, after if you've held for after for more than 10 years, the, whatever profits you made in those investments are now tax-free. And what's really interesting is that there's you can hold it for that investment for decades and make as much money as you can make in that program, and it's all tax-free. Now that presumes you're making profitable investments in areas that. Um, you know, are harder places to invest in. So that's that's the trade-off here. And it's meant to create, um, a, you know, a large market of investment for ideally every investor. They've got a small part of their portfolio that's sort of, you know, if, if you think about emerging markets investments in a, in a regular portfolio, think of these as domestic emerging markets investments that have an incentive. And the incentive is big in, uh, for, depending on your yield, your return, you're talking about, you know, up to 40% or more in, um, you know, an added return. So uh, if you're getting a return that's, you know, 10%, now maybe you're earning 14 or 15%, which can change the game in terms of the sort of things that become investable and how competitive this is for other asset classes. So it's a fairly big incentive, but with an acknowledgement that you're, you're taking risk. Because not only do you have to hold for 10 years, but you have to improve your investment for the most part. You have to build something brand new, or you have to improve something that's already there. And those rules are pretty strict around the program. And that's sort of the art of investing, you know, through this incentive. Hi, if you're just joining us, this is Gino Borges. I'm here with Steve Glickman, the key architect behind the Opportunity Zone legislation that just came out. And that was 2017 or 2018? It, it was uh, passed in two, 2017, yeah, December, December 2017. Steve, you mentioned a little bit about the rules. We'll cover a little bit more about that in terms of working our way down uh, the funnel. But um, 
You know, when I saw you in D.C. at the uh, Nexus conference and you were on a couple of panels and we mentioned this a little earlier, you didn't hide your um, displeasure at some of the things that you heard in terms of sort of sussing out fact from fiction. What do you sort of see right now as um, a narrative that just simple that's constantly being perpetuated that just isn't really what either the policy was intended to do or what it's actually going to do? Well, so I, I, I look, I view this program through a pretty macro lens. So again, we're in the first inning and all the rules weren't in place about this program until a few weeks ago. Uh, so the industry is just building. Uh, and that means that uh, the type of people that are investing, how much money is being invested in, what kind of projects people are investing in and where they're investing is going to uh, develop and evolve over time. Uh, and what would be natural in a market, which I think is what's happening here, is that the early movers, the early pioneers who are taking a lot of risk are offsetting that risk by investing in places that feel more economically stable, that are closer to home, so closer to capital markets, and are in projects that would work regardless. That, I think, is the reality of what's happening in the near term. But, it, uh, but uh, while a lot of people use that as an indictment of the program as not being value add, to me, it's just a recognition that the industry is brand new. And that's what you would expect to happen uh, early. Over time, what's going to happen, I think, and in part we're waiting for the rules for this to happen, is you're going to see more and more capital flow into the market that will be looking for more and more deals that will push people to find projects outside of those geographies. And I see it now in real time. So it's not a hypothetical, as far as I'm concerned, into different asset classes. So from commercial real estate, which is uh, you know sort of the Marines of community development investment, because there's so much muscle memory and it's so obvious to things like energy and infrastructure and business investments, all of which are deals that I'm working on in real time. And to markets that are beyond places like Oakland and San Jose and Seattle and, and you know, DC area to places in the middle of the country where I'm also starting to see more and more deals. The natural equilibrium should be in a program that can tap into $6 trillion of, of unrealized capital gains and is going to do, I think, $100 billion of deals a year for there to be more capital than there are deals and for there to be an increasing spread of the types of deals they're in. But there's a lot of gotcha stories now about, you know, the deal that wasn't deserving in Brooklyn, which I agree was not deserving, but it's a very small part of, I think, the ultimate puzzle. And and if it's not, you know, the program obviously won't have a, a, a shelf life beyond its initial you know period of time to invest, which is essentially over the next 10 years. Um, I, I think you'll see this be tremendously important to a lot of communities and uh, a kind of a go to part of the portfolio for many investors. There's already probably about 300 opportunity zone funds, all of whom are, are raising capital. And you can, I think, go to a, 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 at least a major wealth manager these days and not have them at least have heard about this program and hear the demand from their, their LPs. Uh, so the market is kind of getting more sophisticated around that. So that, that's probably the single biggest thing. The advantage is if you see what I see is to be an early mover in a lot of these other markets, whether it's their geographies or asset classes or fund strategies you're not seeing. On the flip side, I'd say when I talk to the philanthropic and impact community, I think they come at, at this from the perspective that these are impact funds and they're not really impact funds in the traditional sense. They can be, but yeah. this is place-based investing, which for whatever reason, impact investing has never embraced as a form of impact investing. And, uh, and it really makes it its own kind of sui generis class of investment, which is going to be brand new from both the market perspective and the impact perspective. 
And so it makes sense that everyone's a little uncomfortable, but uh, I think both sides of the market are pretty interested in it. Yeah, thanks. Hi, this is Gino Borges again. I'm here with Steve Glickman. Um, if you do have a question, uh, we're fielding all the questions in the um, chat room down below. We just got one from Jim Golan. Um, Jim, we'll, we'll address that as we work our way down the funnel in terms of um, 1031 exchanges um, versus selling stock. What's currently, what's the most frequently asked question that you get, um, Steve? Uh, I, I get I get lots of different types of questions. Um, I think I'm I probably talk to equally community stakeholders as I do to uh, biz, uh, investor and fund manager stakeholders, but they tend to have different questions. And to be honest, right now the two sides of the market aren't doing a good job talking to each other, which is part of the problem this program is meant to address. I think that's a good macro point to make. And then let me come back. This program is just about facilitating capital. And that's not going to be a silver bullet for hardly any community, but it is creating a different conversation, I think, between investors and communities, which we really need, uh, because I can't see a way we get out of we solve a lot of these large economic development problems unless the private investor community is engaged. And once they're investing, they're, they have much more skin in the game to see other things happen that make sense in communities, whether that's crime prevention or building of affordable housing or whether it's you know energy or you know property taxes or good local government. And the places that are going to do the best at this early on that are in your non-traditional markets will have good local government, good mayors who are really engaged. We talked about one of that, Nan Whaley, uh, the mayor of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, obviously a candidate for president now, was very aggressive about this. And, you know, as the mayor of South Bend, the mayor of Oklahoma City, the mayor of Stockton, California, the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, Birmingham, Alabama, who have been many of these cities uh, and, and they those mayors uh, typically come out of communities that have been cut off from capital markets, see this as a kind of a once in a generational way to you know change the conversation where they're from and to start planning in a different way long-term about what can happen to their communities. So on the community side, it's very much how to attract capital. On the fund management side, still, it's, very much, it's the same kind of conversation. The communities want to find who the fund managers are they should be talking to for the most part, what it boils down to. And the fund managers want to find out what, who the investors are they should be talking to. And the investors want to find out who the good fund managers and where the good places are. So I'm going to try to answer the same question, core question, which is who should my partners be in this journey? Uh, but of course, there's a lot of technical details people want to understand as well. You have examples of, you have current examples of what that multi-stakeholder communication sort of looks like um, around the country. Have you seen somebody that's, um, or examples of, of where people are actually considering, uh, you know, investor, fund manager, and community? Uh, there are some. I mean, uh, some of this has been happening through the kind of philanthropic lens through the Kresge Foundation or the Rockefeller Foundation that have intentionally tried to bring, up, bring together those communities. There's a group called Accelerator for America, uh, chaired by Eric Garcetti, that has brought together a number of mayors with investors to help figure out how to, um, build prospectuses and strategies around this. Uh, in terms of specific places, I think you've seen like some interesting stuff in Birmingham, Alabama, where the city is developing a kind of a public-private uh, fund around this space where the city prioritizes uh, projects and the private sector will bring in the capital and they'll sort of co-manage some of that money together or co-prioritize where that money goes. So you're starting to see it take place. But again, we're early. 
So what funds are really trying to do now is structure themselves in a way that makes sense with the program and raise money. And what communities are really trying to do is get a hold of their assets and figure out what's investable and how to build and how to make themselves relevant or put themselves on the radar screen of the broader community. There's a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of examples of, of marketplaces and data platforms trying to bridge that gap. I think there's a big opportunity there still, but nothing has really scratched that itch totally yet. So again, you, you, I think you're seeing this start to form. As we get through this year and into the next year, when, when funds go from raising capital to deploying it, you're going to see much more, many more conversations around communities and the capital side, figuring out how to make this work. And to some extent, that already happens, right? You can't really do um, development of whether it's real estate or infrastructure development without having a strong role with the communities and you know a, a good conversation there. I just think you're going to see more of this coming from where you see capital coming outside of communities who aren't familiar with a lot of those stakeholders trying to find out you know how to partner with them, and that's the big change here. If you're a city, you know, in the middle of the country, you may have uh, lots of local capital. But if you really want to tap into New York or San Francisco or L.A. capital and funds, this is going to be, I think, your opportunity to do that. And you're going to, you know, you're going to have to make some new relationships there. Can you discuss, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier um, that, uh, so there's the policy and then all of a sudden the IRS is responsible for clarifying uh, the rules in regards to um how the program will evolve for funds and investors and so forth. And um, a lot of those rules have become clear over the past couple of weeks. Can you touch on at a high level what's clear and what's still murky? So I think by now we have a lot of answers to most of the fundamental questions. So the, the, the rough timeline is the legislation, the statute passed in December, which is kind of the architecture of this program. The zones were selected in June of last year, so the market's only really been around since then. There was a first round of rules in October released by Treasury and IRS, and a second round that just was released two weeks ago uh, by, by the Treasury and IRS. And that accounts for about 250 pages of regulations, which is a lot to wade through. Um, it, but it basically provides a lot of the threshold answers you need. But timing, where capital comes from how funds should be structured, how they have to deploy it, how you, well, the types of tactics you can use in making investments, you know, like how do you use debt and how do you treat refinancing and how do you deal with depreciation and, you know, a lot of fundamental nuts and bolts questions. I think we have a lot of the answers and there's a lot of the, the opening questions are really in the margins of some of those regs. Um, the, I think the hardest part of assets to invest in are going to be businesses already in zones as opposed to new businesses or those moving into zones. So there's a little bit of murkiness or maybe organic complication there. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, of course, Treasury and IRS rules are, are thinking about this in, in, a, in sort of an academic exercise as tax lawyers. And, in, and the practice of actually deploying this capital on the ground raises all sorts of questions that require interpretation. The reality is we're not likely to get a lot more big chunks of answers from the from the administration. And so, you know, the a lot of the the additional questions are going to come out through just the process of people coming up with reasonable interpretations, working with advisors, dealing with, you know, tax examiners and, you know, trying to get tax rulings on stuff as you go and just, you know, starting to deploy in the marketplace. And the good news is the rules make clear that almost without exception, you can rely on whatever is already in the regulations and take that to the bank. You don't have to worry about 
um, you know, waiting for final clarity. Uh, so I, this is still a new entrepreneurial market. I expect it to develop over the course of a few years, but there's enough rules to uh, deploy capital in just about any asset class now. If you, you know, if you work with folks that are familiar enough with the rules. Yeah. Can you make that distinction? Because um, it seems like the real estate conversation dominates the um, opportunity zone fund, but um, there's also an opportunity for qualified businesses. Maybe you can just talk about how some of those are running in parallel with each other and then how funds are being set up distinctly for real estate. Some are being set up distinctly for um, for for qualified businesses. So most of the market has been in commercial real estate. Um, there's across all asset classes, multifamily, uh, mixed use, commercial, retail, senior living, affordable housing, industrial, everything you can think of. There's about an equal number of asset of, of those asset class uh, in terms of projects available across those asset classes. So, so that's, not, that's not new. <laughs> no, no, hold on. Um, just a reminder for those that are joining the call, if you can please mute your line, I appreciate it. So we can have a clear, clear line here. Good deal. All right. Thanks, Steve. So that's most of the market, but keep in mind, that's an industry that's very familiar with community investment programs. And it's also tangible and uh, unlikely to move out of these zones. So it makes it an easy asset class to figure out. It's also a, a class of investment that's very sensitive to, to taxes and has all sorts of tax treatments that people have been using for a long time to, to uh, fuel that asset class. Business investments tend to work differently and they, they come with uh, more complications organically because businesses can grow out of zones and move out of zones. Um, but, and the rules around business investments have really only been around now for a couple of weeks, but I expect it to be as big of an asset class as real estate, um, both in private equity business investments and in venture capital investments because uh, the, this is a program that, you know, provides an incentive on, on, on returns on, you know, making on the, on your multiples on, on investments and, you know, the business investment side is going to be a much higher multiple than real estate investment, also more prone to failure where there's some downside protection as well in this program. And it was really designed to be the first community investment program to facilitate business investment at scale. And the rules make that fairly easy. If you're a brand new business in the zone, any investment you get uh, where your investors are using capital gains through a fund, and it could be their own fund, um, is going to receive this tax treatment. If you're a business that relocates into a zone uh, for almost in almost all cases and, and, and your property is, and your operations are disproportionately in the zone, any further future investment you get is going to be receive this tax treatment as long as you know the investment comes from capital gains. Um, and if you're an existing business, it's more complicated because the program is designed to bring new, create new assets in zones or improve the existing assets. And it's a little bit harder to do that in a business in a piece of real estate because your assets in the business are more likely to be, you know, personal property like uh, desks and computers and chairs and other space. And, you know, that, that makes it easier or hard test to meet. Um, if, you're, if you're leasing real estate, it, it, it doesn't count for the program, which is good. So you won't be dinged for leasing real estate. Uh, you won't have to improve that asset. Uh, so it just depends. If you've got a big physical infrastructure ready in the zone, it'll be tough to, I think, meet the test. If you're like a tech company and you've got a small one, and uh, I think, and you're already in the zone, I think this will be a relatively easy test to meet. So I do think this will create a whole new market. Now, the challenge for investors in businesses is, unlike real estate, 
you're un- less likely to have con- full control over the asset and its exit events, and you don't want an exit before 10 years without creating some complication. And it's more likely your businesses may move out of the zone, let's say, you know, as is typical to get a further round of capital in San Francisco or New York. Hopefully, this provides incentives for, for businesses to stay and grow in place, which is the single biggest way you create trans- transformational development in places. You think of examples like Exact Target in uh, Indianapolis that got bought by Salesforce for $2 billion and created a bunch of local wealth and local investors uh, that have started to you know, redevelop Indianapolis. Or if you think of Shipped, which is like an Instacart competitor in Birmingham, Alabama, that got sold for $550 billion to, uh, or million dollars rather, to Target. Same kind of story there. Those unicorns have a huge impact on both investors' appetite to invest different places and in terms of the creation of local wealth. So I hope we'll, this will generate a lot of it, um, but uh, but it is more complicated. So there's a you know, pro and a con to, to being in the business market, but I do think it will, it will end up being quite large. It just will take a, probably a few more years to develop. When you look at the asset classes on the commercial um, real estate side, I mean, h- how do you sort of see it shaping up in terms of retail, multifamily, industrial, like, I mean, how's it currently taking shape? And I mean, what do you sort of envision there? Well, if, if you look at the flow of deals in opportunity zones before they were zones, but the same geographies in 2017, there are about $50 billion a year in deals in those 8,760 zones. Um, and, and that was before the incentive. And already, you know, the market, uh, uh, you know, the sales volume has gone up 10, 20, 30%. Uh, and they're pretty evenly divided among asset classes. Now, you know, industrial is a very interesting asset class because there's a big industrial footprint in a lot of these places because a lot of the places that are struggling are struggling because they never fully diversified from being an industrial economy. But you see it, it, that, I think, is the single biggest class, uh, like 15% of those assets, so it's a plurality. But, there, you know, it's about it's almost the same amount of multifamily and, and commercial and senior and, you know, uh, and, you know, retail and affordable being kind of smaller groups of assets. But you can do just about anything in these zones. I've not seen an asset class that necessarily works better than another. This all goes down to the underlying projects and, you know, how well they pencil and how well they work in that market. And that's the thing about this program. Every market's going to be different. Different different markets will need different types of projects. Um, you know, uh, I was just in Puerto Rico, which is a really interesting market because 95% Plus, of the island is an opportunity zone. It has the second most opportunity zones in the country after California, about 10% of the total market. And because it's all on this island, you can do big infrastructure projects because you've got all these contiguous zones. Um, in, in Puerto Rico, you know, they need tourism stuff and they also need multifamily. There's lots of local incentives in Puerto Rico on top of it. So you can do lots of different things there. In other markets, they, you know, they really need housing. And that's really what makes sense and you need the housing before you can do the commercial. Um, you know, every every market's gonna be be different and you, you really have to understand that local approach, I think, to invest in this in a, in a savvy way. Thanks, Steve. Again, if you're just joining us, if you have, uh, we're here with Steve Gleckman, the key architect for the Opportunity Zone. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, from an investor angle, how long, like how does it work? So if somebody sells their Apple stock and has $250,000 of capital gains, just sort of walk us through that process, the time frame that they have to allocate to an OZ fund um, and just, you know, perhaps just walk us through um, a simple example. 
Yeah, so unfortunately, because of the regulations, the simple examples have gotten a bit more complicated, but in a way that I think is investor friendly. So the, the base rule is you, you have 180 days from the day you sell an asset to roll over that capital gains, and we're just talking about the gains, into a, an opportunity zone fund. But it matters where you get your capital gains from because it impacts how your clock works. So if you're invested in um, uh, whether public or private companies, that clock is 180 days from the sale. But if you're invested in real estate, typically, what are called 1231 gains, um, you will have 180 days from the end of your tax year and only from the end of your tax year. And, it, and if you get your gains from a partnership through K1, you either have 180 days from the date the partnership sells the asset or 180 days from the end of the year. And so what that means on that is that uh, investors in, in, in public or private companies will have longer to invest. And investors through partnerships or real estate will usually have the first six months of the next year to invest. So, which means if you already, you may have thought you, if you sold a real estate asset, you know, last February, you may have thought your clock expired, but actually you have to lend to June to deploy your capital. And same thing in a partnership. I don't think that's fully translated out in the marketplace yet. Um, but over time, people will, will obviously understand that. Um, and uh, you've just got to, your obligation as the investor is just to put in a fund. And then really the obligation shifts to the, the fund, to, which operates under a different clock to deploy that capital in certain ways. And I'll, I'll talk through that clock real quickly because yeah. it's important. Funds now have more flexibility to invest as well after these rules. They have uh, six to 12 months to deploy capital, at least six months to deploy that cash and up to a year. And those strategies to extend that time clock even further, uh, we can basically put it in a subsidiary that now has 31 months to, to deploy capital. Uh, so you can have, you know, up to three and a half years to really deploy that cash uh, as long as you have a strategy that works according to how the program is designed. Uh, so there is more flexibility than I think people thought. Um, but there, there are very specific types of assets the funds can deploy them into. They have to be obviously in these zones. They have to be brand new or you have to substantially improve them, which means if you're it's a piece of real estate, you've got to double um, you've got to put as much money into it as you acquire the asset for, minus the value of the land. You can also invest in land, but that's a, a different path. And then there's a different process a bit if you're talking about companies. So there are all slight, slight differences in how the fund will deploy that capital. But the strategy for a lot of funds will either be to have a single asset or a set of single asset funds or a multi-asset funds, but where they're looking at a pipeline of many, many deals. So that they, they have a deal that's ready to go whenever they get capital into their funds, um, and the funds are going to want to be pretty flexible to I think the capital gains clocks of their investors. So I think you sort of touched on. Uh, we have a few questions that that uh, flirt with uh, what you just got done talked about. We have one question from Jim. It talks about coming out of a 1031 exchange versus selling a stock. Um, he also gets six months, but that starts at the beginning of the fiscal year, not necessarily when selling a stock, right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you're if it's a real estate sale, uh, the, you you have six months from the end of your year tax year, which for the most part will be from December 31st, and that's because Treasury wants you to offset your gains from your losses and just invent your your net gains from your real estate sales, um, and that's why it's structured that way. The partnership flexibility is structured because a lot of partners in Partnerships won't know when the sale is and won't get their K-1s until March or April. And so they provided a clock that you not have to guess at what those gains look like. So it's actually meant to be flexible. Uh, but that means 
you're, you know, if you if you have a sale this year, you, you're probably not going to deploy your capital until next year, which gives you a lot of time to evaluate a fund, but uh, limits your flexibility in, in how quickly you can move as an investor. And also, how does one establish the basis if they're coming out of like um, a real estate gain in into a fund? Uh, their their existing basis. Yeah, I should be clear on on the on the you know documentation you get depending on how you get that gain. But yeah, it would be the same gain you would report in the IRS. So it's whatever is essentially taxable by IRS is now, is now being deferred, and you can take back your basis. Unlike a 1031 where you got to deploy the whole thing, the basis and the gain into a new project, in this program, you, you can take back the basis, you just deploy the gain. So you really, the, the, that's, you know, what that really means, you're just deploying what the IRS is going to tax you on. Gotcha. We have a question from Ted um, talking about asset class. Um, can Steve discuss opportunity zones and sustainable agriculture? I'm interested in OZ real estate investments that convert raw land into organic farms. Yeah, so I hear that a lot. There's a lot of, particularly around like vertical agriculture, I hear there's a lot of interest in this program. I just I just talked to one of the larger agriculture investments in the program that are trying to figure out how how they use this in investing in crops. Um, and they, um, uh, I, 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 if it's a vertical agriculture where they, you're sort of building an infrastructure on the land, that's pretty easy. If it's uh, crops. Uh, and you're, you know, you're investing in farmland. Just keep in mind, you got to improve the land in some way, and that's pretty typical. But um, and the test is lower. The improvement test is lower on land than on like a building. But uh, you can't just you can't just have the status quo land. The Treasury doesn't want you to land bank. They don't want you to just buy an existing farmland and you know ride it out for ten years. They want you to to somehow create some kind of improved improvements into into that land. But it sounds like the bulk of the zones are designed for urban, um, sort of like urban renewal um, opportunities. I know that in Nevada, there's some rural areas that are being viewed um, for geothermal projects and solar projects and stuff. But in general, when you, I, I don't recall the exact numbers, but I think you said 8,700 different designations for opportunity zones. How much does agriculture constitute of that 8,700? So about 25% of the zones are rural. So a big chunk of them, you're talking about a couple thousand zones. And those zones, because they're census tracts, rural census tracts tend to be geographically much bigger because census tracts average two to 8,000 people. And you know, 2,000 people can you know, spread over a huge distance in, in rural communities. And that means the type of projects are likely to be different. So you're likely to see energy and infrastructure projects, agriculture projects, stuff that's energy and land intensive, uh, uh, stuff like data centers, which again, doesn't sound like it creates a lot of jobs because it doesn't, but does uh, add a tremendous amount of impact to the local tax base through energy and sales tax and property taxes. So there's gonna be all sorts of projects. I think rural investing is in general harder to do because it's farther away from capital markets and there's less opportunities for what are traditional markets in this space, real estate and business investment. But I, I hear about investments and, and I'm working on deals in, in rural communities uh, all the time. And it's a harder nut to crack, but one that this program is certainly useful for. Jeffrey Kimball asks, uh, will this apply to state taxes or only federal taxes, Steve? Depends on the state. 
so um, it depends on whether you're staking forms to federal tax treatment or doesn't. So about 30 states do conform, including New York, which has about an 8% capital gains rate. Uh, 10 states have no capital gains tax, so it's neutral, and 10 states don't conform. The biggest outlier being California, uh, which has a 13% gains rate. Uh, so it very much depends on the on the state. And that's just the capital gains tax part of it, which obviously matters. But there are other incentives states are offering on top of this program or are prioritizing projects within this program. So Maryland, Michigan, Ohio, um, Puerto Rico, um, and others all have incentives specifically tied to this program where they're offering other state tax incentives beyond capital gains. So sales tax or construction taxes or property taxes um, and other incentives to the program. Uh, and I think increasingly there'll be more and more of this um, in a way that's uh, hopefully additive in a race to the top uh, and not the type of uh, economic incentives you typically see, which is a place mortgaging its tax base for 10 years or more. That would you know defeat the purpose of what this program I think will, will successfully do, which is uh, provide more uh, public revenue on top of the private investment that will allow for a lot of the infrastructure building that will, you know you're going to want to see in these zones. Uh, but you're already starting to see that. Yeah, Steve, can you give us a uh, a sense of how you're currently helping out people that have this intention that are bringing money together and maybe some communities that um, I mean, just to give us a flavor of how multidimensional this opportunity zone. We were talking before we started the call, and I was really impressed by just the full scope that you're involved in, just to give people a sense of color about how, how wide in scope this program is. Yeah, so I, I work mostly with Opportunity Zone fund managers. So think of these as like bespoke private equity fund managers across a bunch of different asset classes and a bunch of different geographies. Um, they tend to, they're, tend to invest nationally. Um, uh, they mostly are real estate, but not all. Um, uh, one's a fund investing in the heartland, one's a fund that really invests more in like third tier markets, um, one's a, a, a large impact investing, renewable energy and telecom infrastructure fund, one's a film studio and production company uh, focused on doing production in Opportunity Zones uh, centered around uh, Latinx and women-centered content. So there's lots of different things you can do with this program and a few of my clients are wealth managers. I'm kind of their kind of all-purpose consigliere or advisor to what's specific to the opportunity zone part of this, uh, a part of investing, which is you know structuring and compliance and strategy and finding the right partners and relationships in this space, uh, and you know and they're doing what they, what they normally do, which is you know be a really good real estate investor or a really good um, you know film and you know and and, and studio company. Um, and I can help them make it work within the contours of this program. And I tend to work just for, you know, bandwidth reasons uh, with large ambitious funds that, you know, everyone's new. So everyone's sort of at ground zero here, but trying to, um, trying to figure this out and want to do deploy lots, lots of capital all around the country. Yeah. Thank you. We have a question from Jennifer. Um, she's, she owns a property in opportunity zone. Is there something special she can do to take advantage of, property being in an opportunity zone? Yeah, it sort of depends on what your goal is for where you want to be in the market. Uh, keep in mind, there's a there's an inherent limitation for people who own assets in zones, which is there's something called a related party test, which says that if you already own the asset and you're going to be the, the capital in the investment as well, you can only be 
you know, no more than 20% of the capital stack of the new economic interest in that project as a way to facilitate new outside capital to come into these, these projects. But it, but your, pro, your, your asset should be uh, more marketable, should be able to get a higher price, should be interesting to a bigger group of investors. And so this is a program that really helps raise capital. If you're looking to sell your asset, uh, either all or mostly to outside investors, this should be a program that helps you do that whether it's a real estate project or whether it's a company in this zone. Uh, what, what, what this program really provides is a, a, a subsidized way to get capital. Uh, it won't change the underlying dynamics of your investment, you know, in terms of making it a bad investment or a good investment. And, uh, and it probably won't change the type of investor that comes in. It will just, I think, put you on the radar screen of, of far more capital opportunity. Thanks. Thank you. The, um, Excuse me. Have you seen? I just got asked this question a couple of days ago, where where a lot of raw land within these particular zones has, has been bidded up to to the extent that it's uh, sort of like when all of a sudden the developer goes in and tries to pro forma a potential project that part of the gain that one would have anticipated for that particular project is see is being compressed as a result of some aggressive pricing on the, um, you know, the raw land or these lots? I, I guess I'm not too worried about it because uh, it still has to deal with the, the, the marketplace. So either will, people will find that price to be worthwhile to, to buy or they won't. I think there's, there are, there are a number of markets where land prices have gone up, but few of those markets have seen many transactions at those prices. Uh, as there are more capital coming into the market, I expect that will justify higher prices because good deals will be scarcer. But right now, I don't think, uh, unless you're in a, a small handful of markets, that there's a lot of justification for price increase yet because there's just not a, enough aggregate capital in the marketplace. But over time, there should be more capital than deals that should reduce that that should lower the rate of return that investors can expect, uh, and so create cheaper capital. And it should create higher prices, but that's the goal. We're trying to appreciate local geographies, whether it's businesses in these markets or real estate or other projects, as a way to you know build the basis, build build the the uh, you know economic growth in these places. So that's a good outcome. I'm just not. I'm, I I just think for many of these markets now, they're probably being smart and trying to predict the fact there's more interest, but they're probably a little early. And we'll see what the market will bear in terms of prices there that funds are willing to pay. We have a question from Jeffries, uh, who's asking, what abuses of the program are you seeing so far? Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm seeing abuses yet per se, except I, I certainly see pl plenty of funds that are operating without the intent this program was created, but that's in some ways okay. A program is designed in a way to be resilient to all sorts of different types of intent by creating certain you know, guardrails around how people have to invest for a long period of time in a way that improves places, in a way that invests uh, ex you know, exclusively in these zones. Um, I think some zones that governors selected are probably undeserving of the program. That's a small percentage of the zones, but still enough that create headlines that you know make me cringe a little bit. Um, and there's probably no way to put that back in the bottle. Those have finite things to invest in, though, and they're also more expensive markets. 
And the re- and I'm not very bullish uh, when I advise funds that they ought to be going to Brooklyn or San Jose or Oakland because those markets are very competitive and they're very expensive. And this is the program that that rewards appreciation. And I would sort of bet on smaller deals in, in lower basis places that have more room to grow. Think of it like a Warren Buffett approach to place-based investing that other people don't see than going where all the rest of the market is. That's a strategic question. Um, Treasury, I think, will come down very hard on real abuses of the program, which are funds that are skating somewhere into the gray area uh, and not away from the black and white of what's allowed. Uh, and so I'm very conservative with the funds I work with to tell them to that, that Treasury will be thinking about the intent of this program uh, when 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 and if they audit funds. And you should expect an over audit of funds at the beginning of any new new program. And those that are not operating in the intent, Treasury has a lot of authority to ding. On the other hand, to the extent you're making an honest mistake or there's factors outside your controls, I expect Treasury to be very lenient. And the penalties in this program are very low. They're essentially the underpayment rate for whatever capital you have invested that don't quite meet the mark. Uh, and they've, they've already created a lot of allowances for like government action, for example, inaction that delays your investment and makes you miss your clock. They've already said that you're not going to be dinging for that. So, and there's no clawbacks in the program because there's no tax credits. So again, I think Treasury understands investors are taking a lot of the risk here, but it's incumbent on investors not not to abuse the program. Easy ways of abusing this program would be like land banking um, and just sitting on land. Treasury has said for sure they're going to ding people for doing that, so don't do that. And over time, I think you'll see more and more of these models come out, including potentially a round of guidance from Treasury that will say, here are the things we definitely think are okay, and here are the things we definitely think are not okay, that will provide more clarity so the market can understand what what an abuse is and what what it's not. That's very thoughtful. Thank you, Steve. We have a question from Aaron, who says, in the latest batch of guidance, there seems to be language around buying and selling opportunity zone investments inside an opportunity zone fund. How exactly will that work tax-wise? Yeah, so basically you can as a if you invest in opportunity zone fund, you can sell your interest to a new opportunity zone investor who is presumably coming in with capital gains. They don't have to invest in a new fund. They can buy out your interest. But keep in mind there's a there's a catch to that and that they're gonna have a, a new time clock and a different one compared to all the other investors in the fund. Typically, at least in a multi-investor fund, uh, investors will be locked up, I expect, from 10 years from the date the last money comes in. So that everyone's on the same clock. So when the fund um, sells its assets, uh, everyone gets the tax advantage. And so that means funds will maybe more like 11 years or 12 years as opposed to 10 years. But if you're a new investor that comes in like year six um, into this program, once you have a stabilized asset to buy an investment from an existing opportunity zone fund investor, you're going to be on a new 10-year clock past everyone else. And plus, you're, you're, you're going to have to pay back your rollover um, in a couple years, as opposed to having that long deferral. So I don't know how practically useful this will be for most funds. The type of funds that will be useful in it are funds that are never intending to sell their assets and intending just to hold on to a portfolio, kind of like a REIT, and sell the interest. Sorry, that was me. And sell the interest in uh, in those funds, uh, uh, you know, over time, over the course of um, you know 30 years, because these funds can hold their interest till 2047. And that's more of a kind of an institutional investment model that could work, but that would be a very small percentage of, of opportunity zone funds, I imagine. Thanks. I want to honor your time, Steve. We're getting close to the top of the hour. And um, 
Is there something? How, see, I mean, how would you sort of summarize the, this experience for um, a group of investors that are learning about um, opportunity zones? Some know more than others, but in general, from what you're seeing, I mean, what a word, what words of encouragement, caution, um, of inspiration would would you give um, investors who are considering investing in opportunity zone funds? So we're at the we're at the very beginning of the market, which means um, uh, early pioneers will have a risk and reward here. The reward is you get to invest when capital's at a premium, when uh, you have your choice of funds, when you have lots of assets to 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 take a look at, um, and when there's more you know less competition. Uh, and that's good for, I think, both investors and fund managers, but you won't have benefited from seeing the track record of your fund managers. We're seeing exactly how the rules of this program play. You'll also be able to maximize the actual tax incentive, which is a, which is increasing value as you have more and more time for that deferral. And obviously, it gives you more time to hit those marks of that 10% and then the additional 5% discount you can get on your, on your rollover. So there's advantages being early, but the risk is you're just going to know less about the market and the players in the market. Um, a lot of these funds will be new. There'll be funds that have track records in different markets like private equity or real estate investing or venture capital, but they may not have uh, a track record in these markets. They may not, and, you know, will certainly not have much of a track record with this program. So that's the, the I think, the risk to being early. I the, the second thing I'd say is that keep in mind this is a relatively risky asset class or the federal government will not be subsidizing it. So that means you're making a bet on places that may or may not play out. You're doing develop deals that involve development of assets and growth companies by design, uh, which you know could have big returns, but could also fail. Uh, and that's probably a bigger risk with business investment than real estate investment, which usually never totally fails. Uh, so it's a risk to keep in mind. So the underlying assets and, and game plan has to make sense. Your fund managers have to check all the boxes you would check for a fund manager. Um, and the third thing I'd say is that that is the extent of the risk, though. There's no real new risk because of this program. And anything you may have uh, learned about the program over the past year, I would a lot of the questions you may have will not have answers because of the state of the regs. So I think this will be a very exciting time to be part of the market. Between now and the end of June, because of those, those end-of-the-year clocks I mentioned earlier, you're going to see a lot of capital flow into the program. Um, and over the course of this year, because you have a little cliff at the end of 2019 where you lose 5% of that, that discounting your capital gains bill, I think you'll see a lot of uh, uh, capital wanting to get into the marketplace, which makes it a, a very exciting time to play. And again, I think it's going to be a very big asset class, $100 billion a year. Uh, and we'll, you know, if it can move that type of capital, have a transformative impact on communities. So depending on where you're coming at this from the market as an impact investor, a philanthropic investor or a market rate investor, um, you, you're going to see a lot of interesting opportunities to have a big change or, or, to, or to make, you know, a, a, a hopefully a, a, a good profit on this program. Uh, but uh, but it's but it, but we're at the very beginning here, so everyone's figuring out how to be in real time. Yeah, thank you, uh, Steve, so much. I mean, uh, I feel fortunate that you'll be able to take some time to share with some a uh, good group of folks that have some good intentions here as well and um, want to do the right thing and really appreciate your service to um, to to the effort as well because and without people like you I mean a lot of the old ways of allocating capital would still be in place and a lot of these places that actually need investment uh, simply just wouldn't get the investment so 
Um, my hat goes off to folks like you as well. Well, yeah, and you know, frankly, I, I think if we don't, if we can't, this is a big experiment, right? I mean, we don't know for sure if it's going to work as intended, but if it doesn't work, there are not a lot of alternatives. And I think the 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 consequence of not being able to successfully um, facilitate private investment in these communities is an increasing political divide and some political kind of realities we're seeing result around the fact that the economy, even though it's really performing really strongly at a macro level, low unemployment, lots of job creation, is just not working for a big chunk of the country. And that has a real impact on our democracy and how it works. So I think the stakes here are big. Most of the conversations I have around the, how to do this in the market, but the political and social repercussions, I think, are just as important. And obviously, was a lot of the driving force for, for why we have this program at all. Great. Thanks, everybody. Again, we just listened to Steve Glickman, the key architect to the Opportunity Zone Funds. This is Gino Borges with Open Path Investments. Thanks again for uh, joining the call. And um, if you have any questions offline, feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, again, thank you and have a good day. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 